You know, we've been talking a little bit about intimacy, and that was last week. And um, a couple of people said, you know, that was, it was good, but it got so complicated, and there were so many things, I'm not sure I got it all. And, you know, what I want to try to do today is just have a very simple, I don't know if I can do simple, but I'm going to try to do simple <laughs> this morning here, and just talk for a while. Because what I want to do is encourage you to pray. If we want intimacy, and I'm assuming that's why most of us are here, we're looking for intimacy with God, with God's presence. We're looking for that to bleed over and spill over and create intimacy in all our relationships. How do we do that? Well, the only way you create intimacy is by spending time together. And not just time, but time that's connected. Time in which we really become vulnerable. We open ourselves up. We let ourselves really be seen. It's time like that over time that creates intimacy, creates that sense of connection. So if you want to be intimate with God, you're going to have to spend that time. How do we do that? Well, that's what we call prayer. But I think we're going to have to expand our notion of prayer, expand our understanding of prayer. Many of you may say, well, I pray all the time, you know, and we do. But what does prayer mean? And is the prayer time that you're spending creating the intimacy that you're looking for? Or are things pretty much the same? And you're wondering why. You know, I'm praying, I'm doing things, but I'm not creating that intimacy. Now we talked about last week how intimacy can't really be measured by what you feel. The feeling of closeness isn't necessarily the intimacy. It's the continuing to show up vulnerably that is the intimacy. But still, we want to feel something, and you think we should, and we will at times, of course. When I grew up Catholic, prayer was all about recitation. Prayer were those prayers that I learned and had to recite over and over again. I see some heads going up and down, so I know you know what I'm talking about here. You know, so we had all those prayers that we said, and we said them at, this, at the right times during the Mass. We said them on the Rosary. We said them here and there and all everywhere. And there's nothing wrong with recited prayers. They can be beautiful. They can bring us right back emotionally to a place if they're used correctly. But used the way I learned them and the way that I did them as a child, it was just what Jesus called vain repetition. It was just repeating things over and over again, and it didn't do anything to create a sense of connection or intimacy. And of course, I was just a child. Some 20 years later, when I landed in an evangelical church, the prayers were now all free form. You know, yes, we still had the Our Father, but that was really something second tier. The prayers that we really said in the evangelical church, were all from the heart. They were just spoken, improvised prayers. And since we were a little bit charismatic, then there was praying in tongues, and I really didn't get that. I had no idea what that was all about. But I still didn't understand prayer. I would try to do it right. I would hear the way they prayed, and I would try to pray the, the way they prayed. And I would try to say something significant, and I would try so hard to do it so that I felt that connection or made that connection. Or maybe it was just to get the acceptance of the people around, you know, the nodding heads and the mm-hmms and the amens that you would sometimes say in corporate prayer. I was looking for something, and I wasn't getting it. I didn't understand what prayer was all about, and I really didn't understand intercessory prayer, how you could pray for someone who was remote to you. All these were questions that I had. And when it, terms, when it comes right down to it, you know, it caused a lot of stress. I was always stressed out. I was always feeling less than. I was always feeling like I didn't fit in, that I wasn't good enough. 
And all of that type of feeling, all of that type of emotion and activity is the opposite of intimacy. Intimacy is knowing that you're accepted exactly as you are because you have been over time. And all of this was flying in the face. Everything was not working. I wanted so badly for someone to teach me how to pray. And nobody really could. It was amazing to me to ask the question and not get an answer back that made any sort of sense or that was in any way something that I could grab onto. I remember when I was trying to learn how to sing, I would always ask people, how do you get vibrato? You know, vibrato, that sort of oscillation in the voice that you hear. I wanted that. And I'd ask people, how do you do vibrato? And I could never get a straight answer. <laughs> it's interesting because after, uh, once I was able to produce vibrato myself, I sort of understood because it's kind of naturally what the voice does when the tone is produced correctly. And so it's kind of hard sometimes to say how you do it. It's sort of getting out of the way and letting it happen more than anything else. And I think prayer is much the same way. We spend so much time trying to figure out how to do it when if we just kind of get out of the way, it's going to happen. But it's going to happen in a different way than we possibly expect. If you take all the different forms of prayer that I've been talking about, there's one thing in common, and that's words. We're using words. We're thinking words. We're saying words. We're trying to create and craft words. And so I think that's where we need to start our focus here. What about these words? What is it that the words are doing or not doing? You know? And how can we find a way to pray that really makes a difference? And how do we know if we're praying right? You know, it seems at least our prayer should give us a change, an effect, a different way of experiencing our lives, both with an unseen God and with each other. The basic function of prayer, I think, should at least allow us to drop our shields, become more open, become more vulnerable, so that the intimacy that we find in our prayer closet stretches out and becomes part of all of our relationships. So there's an effect there, even if it's not felt as some sort of ecstatic, in love sort of intimate feeling that maybe we're going for. To step away from all those expectations, to step away from all of that, and just allow ourselves to be in connection, I think is the beginning of prayer. It's natural to ask these questions, though, and Jesus' followers asked him, didn't they? Lord, teach us how to pray. But unlike some of my teachers, he actually had an answer, and he had a really good one. And we call it the Lord's Prayer. And when they asked him to teach us how to pray, he came back to them with something that would have sounded something like this in his own language of Aramaic. Avundavashmaya, nitkadashmach, teite melchuta, neve sebyanach, ekanadavashmaya afbara, havlan lachma, tesunkanan yomana, vashvoklan choben, ekanadavkanan, Shwakan lachayavein. Velatedlan nenesyuna. Ilapatsam embisha. Mitol de luchay malchuta. Vahayla. Vatush bochta. Vahalam amin. Amen. As close as I can come to Galilean Aramaic. 
And isn't it nice to know you all speak a little Aramaic? Amen. That's a perfectly good Aramaic word. Perfectly good Hebrew word. It means just to solidify, to affirm, to see this, this, the, the solidness of something is amen. And so here's this model prayer that Jesus gives his followers in this language. And we have taken it and turned it into a prayer of recitation. We translate it into our language and we say it over and over and over again. But what was Jesus really at as he was giving this prayer? What was he trying to get across? Because in the language of Aramaic, there are so many possibilities of translation. When you go back into the roots of the words, it shows you what the concept was, what the mindset was, what the reality was of these people living this first century agrarian lifestyle. And what they understood about these various words and phrases that give us clues if we go back to find out what Jesus was really after because the Lord's Prayer was never a prayer that was meant simply to be recited. It was a prayer that was meant to be lived, fully engaged in with every moment, day after day. And if you look at it, each of the five phrases, each of the five lines creates a five-step way of living life that will transform us if we will let it. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Really, it would be let your name be set apart. To make something holy is to set it apart, to dedicate it. What Jesus is really talking about here is to clear a space, to set apart a space, to receive the Father's name, his Shem, which is his essence, his character, everything he is about, his deepest desire, delight, purpose, his will, but we've got to clear a space in order for that to happen. The next one, which is, let your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. So if you think about God's will from an Aramaic, a Semitic point of view, it doesn't have anything to do with a legal instrument. What it has to do with is desire, delight, and deepest purpose. Literally, what Jesus is saying is that desire, that deepest purpose, which is oneness and unity that abides in God's realm, bring that to earth. Let that come and become the basic experience of life here on the surface of this planet. In other words, to match our desire to God's desire. Clear that space prepared to receive, begin to match our desires to God's desires so we're no longer just obeying we're actually living out who we deep, most deeply are. Havlan lachma desunkanan yomana. Let the bread of our give us the bread of our need this day. In other words, everything is today. Everything is now. We're not worried about what's going to happen next week or next month. The bread of our need, the provision that we need, is here and now in this day and nowhere else. Stay in the moment. Stay present. Stay right here. Don't get lost. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our debtors, just as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us, who have debt with us. In other words, rebalance the scales, things that have gotten out of balance. To a Semitic mind, 
a trespass, an offense, and a debt are exactly the same because they unbalance a relationship where you had two people who were peers, who were equals. Now you have creditors and debtors. You have, you have perpetrators and victims. And so to bring the freedom of balance back into those relationships recreates what we need to be able to live our lives freely. Lead us not into temptation. That's the way we say it. Do not let us enter into temptation is a direct translation out of the Aramaic. And notice the difference. God is not leading us anywhere than to temptation. Do not let us enter. Deliver us from evil, from Bisha. In other words, don't let us be diverted. Once we're on the path, let us stay on the path. With all the things that push and pull and tear, let us not be diverted to stay right down the center. These five phrases create, think of it this way. If you really lived your life that way every day, what would change? How would your life be different? If you really cleared a space, quiet it down, open it up, create a place to receive God. If you really did, then move from there into matching your desire to let God's desire permeate into you his deepest purpose, so that you just did it naturally. It wasn't a feeling of restriction of obedience anymore. It was a freedom of doing what you do. If you stayed in the moment, if you rebalanced relationships as they got out of balance as quickly as you possibly could, and if you weren't diverted from purpose. Those of you in recovery are probably hearing the 12 steps, and you should, because they're there, of course. This way of living life is the prayer. The prayer isn't what we say. The prayer is what we do, what we live, the attitudes that we have, the freedom that we have with which to relate to each other, to be vulnerable and to connect. This is what Jesus is trying to show us. He's trying to show us this is how you live. This is not just what you say. But Jesus said something else. He said, seek first the kingdom. And God's righteousness and all else will be added. He was trying to simplify everything. What's the greatest commandment? Well, love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Very simple, because everything else is commentary. Everything else is, is subsumed underneath that one thing. Seek first the kingdom, this right here and now quality of life that we can have when we are present to God's presence. His righteousness, the oneness, the unity of all things. Start there and everything else is added. And I think we can do the same thing with his prayer. That first step to clear a space. If we don't do that, then everything else is not going to take place. We are so focused on words. But what is a word without the silence before and after to give it edges? To give it singularity? to give it meaning. We need the silence. We need to clear the space. Until we have cleared a space to let God in, we literally have nothing to say. So clearing a space becomes everything. Clearing a space becomes the prerequisite. It's the ticket in the door for us to be able to do everything else that we're trying to do. And truly, the Aramaic word for prayer, selah is the root, slotha, is the actual word. But what it really means, originally in the root, is a hunting term. It means to set a trap. 
I've gone through this before. If you think about it, if you're going to set a trap for a rabbit in the woods, what do you do? Well, you clear a space, <laughs> get all the underbrush out, you lay your snare, you run it back into the blind, you cover it back up over again, and then you retreat into that blind and you wait patiently, hushed, expectantly for something to happen so that you can spring the trap. This is the Jewish understanding of prayer. It's that clearing of a space interiorly, setting it very carefully, setting the table, waiting for the guest to arrive, and then retreating and waiting expectantly, listening, every nerve a hair trigger for the arrival of God, to lean in, to incline toward, to focus. All these would be good translations of slotha. If our prayer becomes that, a clearing of a space and this expectant, you know, momentary understanding that God is here and God is now. Everything starts to change in life from that point. But it's not something we do naturally. It's something that has to be learned and something that has to be practiced. And in our culture, the way we were talking about earlier, the way we live our lives at this breakneck pace, we're really going against the grain. We've got to become salmon in order to swim against that stream. Everything is moving against us in our society. At least in the first century ancient world, there was a lot of open space. And there was dark skies at night to bring the grandeur of God every night back into your consciousness. And there was open spaces and there was time during the day. Not now. So we need to create it for ourselves. My encouragement to you to pray is to start to create this time. To create this way of doing this. Now, centering prayer is one of the ways of doing it. It is a technique. It is an adaptation of an ancient form of Christian prayer for the modern era that we can do. And I put inserts into your bulletins this morning because I'm trying to sell you something. (laughs) I'm trying to show you, and I hope by the end you'll see that there is a benefit, there is such a purpose to something that seems... Like, you don't even know how it's going to work. How does this even work? If I just spend time not thinking, if I spend time stepping away from the words that are constantly spinning in my head. But if you will do this, if you will dedicate time to this, things will begin to change. And centering prayer is really simple. How many of you have meditated in here before? Okay? Okay, a lot of you. How many of you have heard of centering prayer? Is there anyone? Just a few. Well, I guess more than I thought. That's great. It's just another way of doing it. If you've meditated before, maybe you followed the breath, maybe you stared at a candle flame, maybe you had guided imagery, someone speaking to you and taking you into a scene or a place. All meditation and centering prayer is designed to take your brainwaves from the waking state, from the beta state, and drop you down into alpha, which is the lightest stage of sleep, without falling asleep, to stay alert and awake in that state. Because in that state, all of that brain activity just starts to fade. It starts to go away. And when we can step away from all of that stuff, all that noise in our head, we are open, we are vulnerable. Think about it. The words are our shields. The words are what we use to defend ourselves. Not just in conversation, but what we think of ourselves, the self-image that we've built up. That keeps us from the reality of whatever is actually present. It keeps us away from true intimacy with God's presence and it keeps us away from each other. If we're constantly trying to project an image, if we're constantly trying to be who we think we need to be, then how does anyone ever really see us? And how do those relationships ever work out? 
To practice spending time away from all of that is the goal of centering prayer. And it's simple, you know, sitting comfortably with your eyes closed. You choose a sacred word. And the word isn't sacred because of the word itself. The word is sacred just because of your intent, the signal of your intent to just be and to step aside from all of that stuff that's constantly spinning in your head, all those thoughts. And so you just introduce the word lightly into your consciousness. Mine is usually Abba, which means daddy, father. It's a, it's a very familiar and, and affectionate term for father in Aramaic, Abba. And then it's like dropping a rock into a still pool with a lot of film and dirt on the surface. And as the ripples go out, it clears the space. And then if you wait, slowly it closes back in again. And then when you realize you're thinking about your thoughts again, they have taken over. You've grabbed onto the laundry list again and the things that you need to do. And when is that timer going to go off so that this thing is over? And all the things that you're thinking about, you just say, Abba, again. And you clear the space. If you can spend 20 to 30 minutes in the morning, maybe in the evening, I know that sounds like a lot. Maybe just try one. Maybe just try it two or three times a week to start with, but see what it starts to do. And the first ones are going to be difficult. Inside your head, it's going to feel like being inside of a pinball machine or a popcorn machine. Stuff is just going to be firing all over the place, and you're going to be going, Abba, 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 Abba. You know, you don't want to make it a mantra. It's not a mantra, you know, and you don't focus on the word. You just use it to clear the decks. And if you have to do that every 30 seconds for the entire 20 minutes, and that's what you do, and then you start to get frustrated and angry with yourself, Abba. <laughs> Step aside from that as well. You're hearing noises, you're feeling itches and stuff, and Ava, just allow yourself to be. I know that this probably seems like nothing. And I know that when you do it for the first times, it's going to feel like nothing, and you're wondering why you're doing it. But if you think of it as an, you know, an aerobic exercise, what do you do? You get your heart into a, a target zone, right? Heart rate up into a target zone, and you hold it there for 20 or 30 minutes. And you don't feel like anything's different. You just get tired and winded. You know? But if you do it enough over time, you start to see the changes. You're not going to see them right at the beginning, and you're going to want to quit, and you're not going to want to get up and do this kind of stuff. But when you push through that threshold, and you start to see the results, and you start to feel better, and you actually start to enjoy the times of workout themselves for what they are, now you're in a cycle that takes you where you really want to go. Centering prayer and meditation will be exactly the same, except now we're dropping our brain waves into a target rate and we're holding them there. And the same thing's going to happen. You won't feel anything at first and you're going to want to quit. But if you push through, something happens. And you can tell by the way I'm talking about centering prayer. It sounds kind of mechanical and physical because it actually is. It's just a technique. But what happens when the heart of the believer actually gets stripped and becomes open and vulnerable and really does encounter God's spirit, which is always vulnerable and open. Something spiritual happens in the encounter. We just have to practice getting the physical out of the way so that we can have that time. That's what we're after. But it's going to take time. You know, all I can do is draw from my own personal experience, and forgive me if this gets too personal, but I want to try to show you some of what happens. Because I read a lot about centering prayer, and I read about what's supposed to happen, but what I experienced, darn if it wasn't right along the lines of what they said. You know, I was, a, 
I was a very insecure kid. And what I realized, well, I didn't realize it, through my teen years, through high school, through my 20s and into my early 30s, life was just a chaotic mess. I don't even have really good, clear memories of my entire 20s and early 30s, even my high school. I could tell you what I did. I could recreate the events, but it's like I read it in a book or someone else told me. It's like I wasn't there because guess what? I wasn't there. I was always someplace else, thinking I needed to be someplace else, do something else, always obsessing over the next thing that I had to do and the place that I needed to get until finally in my early 30s, it all came crashing down and I hit this wall and everything fell apart. And that was the beginning of a true search for meaning that to me had the force of life in it. I didn't know why I was taking another step or another breath at that point. But I started to try to find out why am I here? What's going on? Because I'd never asked those questions before. Not in Catholicism, you know, and not in the years in between. And two things happened as I actually started to lean into this. The first thing was when I finally started to study the origins of Christianity and the Hebrew Semitic roots of Christianity, I met Jesus again for the first time. I had never encountered him. I didn't know who he was. I had no idea. He was just the guy bleeding on the cross when I was a kid. That was so remote. That was something that I couldn't relate to. And it's something that gave me no comfort. Why would it? But I met this Jesus who spoke without contradiction, who was full of common sense, always practical, and always pointing directly to the Father's love, unequivocally, you know, always to the Father's love. And so all those difficult questions and all those difficult passages of Scripture just kind of melted away because here was this Jesus who spoke to me this way. And the second thing that happened was that I finally encountered contemplative prayer, contemplative life. I started reading people like Thomas Merton and the great mystics you know, of the Middle Ages and Meister Eckert and Teresa of Lisieux. And I started to realize there was another way to pray, this way that we're talking about, this wordless place of rest. And I started to practice it. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> it wasn't creating the effects that I wanted, I thought because I still felt just as neurotic as I always did. But as the masters were telling me, things weren't going to necessarily happen during the prayer session, but during the rest of the day. And that's what started to happen. Memories started to bubble up out of, I don't have any idea where, things that I forgot that I had forgotten. Memories of early childhood, memories along the way, and they started to have real significance to me. I have one memory that came up during this period that I'd totally forgotten, and it was my mom taking my sister and me just to the bank, just on an errand. And so she's standing at this glass, big glass table. Of course, it looked big to us because we were, we were tiny. And it was one of these affairs that has the legs, and then it has spokes that go in and support a trash can underneath. Ever seen anything like that? So there's this trash can underneath and a glass top. And she's standing up there doing her deposits or whatever she's doing. And my sister and I scoot underneath, and we're looking through the trash can. And we found that someone had folded up a pieces, pieces of paper and then torn them up. And I was just fascinated by how the edges all matched up and feathered. And I thought that was just the coolest thing. And I wanted to show my mom because this is this treasure that I had found. And she just, you know, put that back in the trash. That's dirty. 
you know. I couldn't understand why she didn't think this was just the coolest thing in the world, you know. <laughs> why not? There was another time I remember we were at a sh- uh, some shopping center and there was a flock of, of sparrows. And I went running through the sparrows because I was going to catch a I was going to catch a bird. So I'm running through it, and I could just imagine what that would have looked like. And my mom's laughing. You're never going to catch one of those. Well, one of them went right into a kind of a palm bush kind of thing, and I can still I can close my eyes now, and I can see that bird down in there. It kind of got wedged in, you know, as it was flying. And I'm reaching down. I'm thinking I'm going to show my mom. I'm going to get this bird. And of course, at the last minute, it flew away. But what I started to realize that there were these memories that I'd forgotten of this child that lived life like that, with complete abandon, just scoot underneath a table and play in the trash can, run through the mall, outdoor mall, chasing after birds without thinking a thing about what that looked like or what people might say. See, by this time, I had come to believe that I was just a dark person, I wasn't really depressed or neurotic. This is just the way I am. And I started to have memories of another me that was exactly the opposite. So much like our little Brennan right now, our 11, 12-year-old. He just turned 12 yesterday. But that kind of joy for life, that kind of complete abandon. And then another memory came up. And it was us again out, my sister, my whole family, sister and father and mother. And there was one of those... Scales that they used to have, coin-operated scale, where you could put a quarter in and then you could weigh yourself. And what we would do is the entire family would do it. So dad got on, put on, put in the quarter, and then keeping his weight on would let my sister stand on, and then he'd get off, and then she could weigh herself, and then I got on, and I just thought this was the coolest thing. And so what do you do when you just can't contain yourself? I jumped up and down. <laughs> and mom didn't get to weigh herself. And she just lit into me. She said, that, you are so selfish, you don't think of anyone but yourself. And I'm remembering all this stuff, finally, for the first time in probably 30-some years. And it's just like all I was, do- was doing was I was just so excited. And then I felt, these things start to come back. Other darker memories started to come back as well. But I started to piece something together. I started to realize that there was an evolution from that kid who was so free and so full of life to the person that I had become by adolescence and young adulthood. I remembered that in seventh grade I had my first crush on a girl. I can still remember her name now. It was Julie Brewer. I think she was taller than me, and she played the cello. Big old instrument. I remember meeting her one time now. Again, these memories were just popping up at the library and watching her walk away, and all I could see was a cello with feet. It's just this big instrument, and it's walking away, you know. And I didn't see her all summer between 7th and 8th grade, and of course I was pining after her, and then I started getting teased mercilessly, you know. And I had been getting teased, because I was kind of a bookish kid. Teased in my family, teased at school, bullied, and I realized how all of this stuff was just covering over and over and over. And I realized that summer that this was no longer acceptable to other people, who I was and the way that I lived and and how I was. And I made this decision to be different. And in eighth grade started, I went out for every sport. I started going to dances. I did everything the exact opposite. I took lessons in public speaking. I did whatever I needed to do so that people would accept me. And that defined me for the next 20 years doing everything I did, every decision I made out of fear, out of a need to be accepted by someone else. And here in my 30s now, all these memories popping up, and I'm starting to see the connection between them. 
who I really was, who I had become because of the hurts. And you know what? These are minor things. There's a few more major ones that can be left unsaid this morning. But these are minor. Some of you are sitting there with real and true trauma in your lives. But you know what? Pain is like perfume. Open the bottle anywhere in the room and soon you smell it everywhere in the room. It doesn't matter the amount of trauma. It's yours And it caused you to change and become something that you were never intended to be. Covered over with that hurt, covered over with that pain. The prayer was what started to release it all. I think what Centering Prayer does over time is thin out the barrier between the subconscious and the conscious. It makes it permeable so that these things come through, not during the prayer itself, but by creating that cleared space, that attitude with the way that you approach the day. Things start to come up and they make sense. And once you realize what's at issue, what's going on, why you keep making the same choices over and over again, why you feel triggered in certain ways by certain things, It opens up a space between the stimulus and the response that allows you to make a different choice. And as soon as you can do that, make that different choice enough times in a different direction, you change the nature and character of your life, of how you do life, your experience of life. It changes. Everything starts to move in a different direction. See, I believe that the intimacy with God allows us to see past hurts, allows us to see us as others see us, not through this false self. We're doing purging right now at our house. We're trying to go through and purge a bunch of... So there's a bunch of junk that's coming to light and having to decide what to throw out and what to keep. And I found this one portfolio that we had done in the early 90s. So it's like 25 years ago of this little firm that we had put together to do marketing communications. And as I'm flipping through it, there were pictures of each one of the four of us partners in this thing. And I came upon my picture, and I just stopped for a second, because, like, who is that guy? You know? <laughs> First of all, being impossibly young and, and, and kind of weird, and sort of a modified mullet there, but, uh, you know. <laughs> but I'm looking at this image, and I'm thinking, how is that me? You know? Actually, I looked good, and I'm thinking, hey, this is kind of cool, but I don't remember that person. And so I showed it to Mary, and she goes, yeah, that's the guy I married. You know, she remembers. But here's the thing. I, at that time, never, ever felt good enough. Never felt like I looked good. Never felt like I was okay. I always felt like I had to be someplace else doing something else. We were having a group session here just last week, and there, here's this one of the women, women there, attractive lady and she was we were talking about how it's so hard for us just to take a compliment people compliment you what do you do oh well you know it's just the lord i didn't do it it's just or it's like oh well this old thing we minimize we deflect it's so hard for us just to say thank you just thank you and this lady said you know what's the same thing when people tell me i look good i just don't believe them I don't, I, they, they must be just being nice to me, you know, or they want something from me. But she can't believe that she just looks good. And she does, but she doesn't see it. I think what true prayer does, it allows us to see ourselves the way God sees us. Not the way we have learned to see ourselves, but as this precious child, as his best friend, as his favorite kid, because every single one of us is his favorite kid and his precious child. God can do that. He can have an infinite number of best friends. 
to break through that vision of ourselves, to break through the fear, to break through is what prayer finally allows us to do. And it all starts with simply clearing a space. To be intimate with God is to know God. To know God is to spend time connected with God. And to be connected is to be vulnerable, to let someone else really see you. It starts with a risk. You have to risk letting yourself be seen. You have to risk dropping the shields, dropping the words, just being imperfect in another person's presence and see if they run screaming from the room or not. And when they don't, you realize, ah, and of course God never runs. He already knows us like we could never know ourselves. I want to read just a little bit of Psalm 139, and this is a Psalm of David. With everything that we've said here this morning, see if you can see what we're talking about in this song, in this psalm. See. He wrote, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. And sitting down and rising up in Hebrew is an idiomatic expression that simply means, you know, everything that I do all day long. It's my character, my essence. He's saying, you know my character. You know what I do. You know how I conduct my life. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And if you don't know what Sheol is, it's the ancient Hebrew abode of the dead. It's not like our hell, but our hell is the closest we've got. How many of you think that if you were even in hell, God would be there? Brother Lawrence said that. He said, even in hell, it would become a paradise because of the presence of my God. Think on that for just a second. Where does a thought like that come from? How could a person even write that unless they had experienced ever ever-present God, never-ending presence of God, that wherever they had gone, and no matter how difficult the situation, they realized God was still present. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it well. How does his soul know it well because of time spent connected, time spent vulnerable, time spent completely open, accepting 
imperfection, accepting guilt, accepting all the things that it means to let go of that self-image, to let go of all our defense mechanisms. To be vulnerably connected with God is to let go of our words, to pray in a different way, to pray just in rest, to become free, to become free enough. I hope and pray that our prayer will make us free enough to be able to sit on the floor next to a trash can and admire the torn paper. I hope it will make us free enough to just chase after a flock of birds with our arms in the air and complete abandon. And I hope and pray that our prayer and your prayer allows us to see ourselves exactly as God sees us. No more, no less. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. It is so incomprehensible to us that you could know us thoroughly and still love us. We are so hard on ourselves. We are so afraid that we don't measure up. Help us to move past any resistance that would keep us from experiencing who you really are in this prayer to become completely open to you and just see what happens. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Thank you for being the kind of God that we can trust with our most precious possessions, with our deepest secrets, to let those secrets go and to find the freedom to run again. Thank you, Father. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.